Hi, this is John Leahy. Thanks so much for tuning in to Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's Broadcast Booth. If you like what you hear, please consider subscribing. On the major platforms like Apple and Spotify, we come out with brand new episodes every Wednesday with refreshing content. So I thank you for your support. And again, you're listening to Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's Broadcast Booth. And I encourage you to subscribe. Thanks and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, airing it out, files from Leahy's broadcast booth. I'm John Leahy. Thanks again for being with us here on the podcast. It's been a busy time here on the podcast as of late. I want to thank my guest from last week, the uh, television voice of Dartmouth College Hockey, Rob Kennedy. Had a great time with Rob. We uh, previewed the ECAC playoffs, which uh, have now since passed the first round anyway. And uh, we had a bonus podcast episode that we uh, had this past Sunday, a couple of days ago, we previewed the Hockey East playoffs, which are going to get underway tomorrow night in three uh, different cities, Orono, Maine, uh, also Providence, Rhode Island, and Chestnut Hill, uh, Mass. And so if you haven't heard uh, those episodes, I encourage you to stop by the podcasting website, which is at LeahyStorytelling.com. That's L-E-A-H-Y Storytelling.com. You'll have access to all the episodes. You can also leave a written review or uh, assign a certain number of stars to uh, an episode zero to five. Uh, we also have a blog up there and uh, also some videos uh, of some music that I've done. So I encourage you uh, to check that out. You can also leave uh, a voice message as well. There's a purple microphone on the lower right hand corner of each page. And if you'd like to send in a message with comments or suggestions, please feel free to do so. And um, you know, that uh, is something that I check regularly, and it could be anything. So uh, please feel free. And also consider subscribing if you'd like. Uh, we're on Apple and Spotify, uh, the two big uh, podcast hosts. So uh, you might recall last month we began a discussion of classic National Hockey League arenas, and uh, we did so with the longtime voice of the Hartford Whalers and the Carolina Hurricanes, uh, Chuck Caton. And Chuck has been gracious enough to rejoin us as we continue this discussion. Uh, Chuck, again, thanks so much for being here. It was a great time last time. Well, uh, John, I am uh, very happy to be with you once again. You're catching me between two golf shots, not really. <laughs> uh, so I've got a lot of time. I've got all the time in the world for you, and it was uh, it was a real uh, thrill to uh, talk to you and, and uh, come up with the memories that we uh, spoke about of all those wonderful arenas, especially the original six arenas, as you outlined, from your area, home of uh, the Boston area, to, to my area of Detroit. There were just so many great memories uh, and wonderful people that played in those arenas. And so uh, I'm very, very happy to join you once again. So I guess we'll have at it. Uh, 
you've got some new arenas for me, I suppose. Absolutely. We're, we're going to uh, touch on a couple of uh, original six arenas. We're also going to talk about some uh, Canadian arenas. But uh, I'll just go right down the list, Chuck. And uh, let's start out in Pittsburgh uh, at the old Civic Arena in Pittsburgh. I remember as a kid growing up in the 70s watching uh, games from the old Igloo on uh, WSBK TV 38. I, I always loved watching games from there. A lot of memories uh, there in Pittsburgh, uh, Chuck. And, uh, of course, you got to work with uh, Mike Lang there with the Penguins. So why don't we start there? Yeah, the first guy I think of, maybe it's not appropriate, is Jean-Claude Van Damme. Who, oh, yes. Uh, was, <laughs> remember the movie that was done in that building? And Mike Lang, by the way, was in that. He had a cameo appearance in that one. I think, uh, uh, I can't recall the name of the movie right now. I, it was one word. But Howard Baldwin was the producer of that movie, and he was with the Penguins, of course, the former uh, uh, Whaler uh, managing general partner. But, yeah, Mike was a good friend of mine. He's a terrific broadcaster. Uh, in retirement right now in the Pittsburgh area. But the, the biggest thing I remember about the Igloo was when I first started watching games from there, that uh, initial expansion season of 67-68, there was a left-handed goaltender who now resides in the Tampa area uh, named Les Binkley, uh, who was uh, the Penguins goaltender at the time. And I remember uh, watching games, Bud Lynch, Bruce Martin were our broadcasters in Detroit. Uh -huh. And uh, Les Binkley was uh, a goalie, uh, much like Roger Crozier and other left-handed goalies in uh, uh, the past, like Tom Barrasso, who uh, caught uh, basically with the right hand. He, I called him a left-handed goalie in the baseball parlance. But uh, uh, I remember games, uh, Shock, Schinkel, and uh, uh, those kind of guys. I mean, you had uh, Kenny Schinkel, Ron Schock. Uh, of course, the late uh, Michel Briere, who played for the Penguins in those days. And then, of course, graduating up, uh, when I first started doing games there in the 79-80 season, yep. one of our first games, you know, John, was in uh, the Civic Arena. One of the, uh, the Whalers that year had 27 of their first 40 games on the road because of the repairing of the Hartford Civic Center. So they, they backloaded the home schedule to the second half to, to get into the Hartford Civic Center, which they did in early February that year. Right. So they'd have more home games in the second half. So Pittsburgh was part of a four-game road trip that we had. And I recall a 3-3 uh, tie in that game. Uh, you had, uh, but I was fascinated by the retractable roof, which was state-of-the-art at the time in the late, late 60s, where they would have concerts in there and be able to open that up so you would have moonlit concerts uh, <laughs> as long as it did, didn't rain. And, you know, that big, it, it was almost like a big bowl, uh, that very high uh, rounded ceiling, and uh, it was quite a place. And I remember the boards were very lively there. But the one thing that I know uh, players complained about, John, was the locker rooms were not, I mean, at least the visiting locker room was pathetic. Uh, wow. I think they made it. So it was kind of like Boston, actually. The, the Boston Garden was the same way. Yeah. They didn't do any favors, you know, for the visiting team. So it was kind of a, a, a dingy uh, visiting room, as I recall. And uh, it, it was just quite a a different arena uh, in our perspective uh, uh, from a broadcast. Okay. I would be right next to Mike Lang, but we were kind of inside the blue line. So we were not even really at center ice yeah. Uh, yeah. in those early days. So that made it a little bit different, but you were so high up that it really didn't matter. But uh, yeah, the civic arena, which is now a parking lot for the new arena, uh -huh. uh, Pittsburgh paints arena uh, is uh Something that, uh, you know, I, I have some memories, of course, watching Mario Lemieux play there uh, before they moved. And so uh, 
uh, and of course Ronnie Francis after the the trade from the Whalers, and so uh, lots of different memories uh, in that building. Was Mike Lang as funny off the air as he was on? Oh yeah, I mean, uh, I once got uh, my back scratched with a hacksaw. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, he he was tremendous, and of course he, uh, you know, he grew up in of all places, Sacramento, California. Right, right. And I don't know where. Uh, I remember he told me the story of how. He, he had some broadcaster. He was doing Phoenix Roadrunner games, I guess, uh, uh, in the old IHL. And he uh, he uh, had a, an idol that did the same thing, that had all these different phrases. Uh, and, and he they incorporated them. And, uh, you know, it was just folksy enough for the people of Pittsburgh to uh, um, make him an, a, a real iconic figure, uh, along with Bob Prince, who did pirate games, of course, for years. Right. Right. And, and they, you know, they they really endeared themselves to their respective fan bases with those phrases. I mean, uh, it was good down home uh, uh, broadcasting, really relating to the listener. Mike, uh, you know, I miss him. I talk to him quite frequently, uh, you know, occasionally once a month or so, and uh, he uh, is still going strong, and uh, still has that wonderful voice, uh, uh, and. Uh, it has an inimitable style that people uh, in Pittsburgh still adore. Nice, Chuck. Uh, all right, let's uh, let's take us uh, take it down to Dallas, Texas, right now to the old uh, Reunion Arena where the Dallas <laughs> Stars used to play, and that place is uh, is very very special to me because my parents lived down there for 15 years. My dad's business got transferred down there, and we went down there lots of times to visit. And uh, that arena was in an area of town near the west end of Dallas, and that is one of the funnest places I think I've ever been to. But I'd love to hear your uh, your stories about Reunion Arena, Dallas, and Texas. Well, it was a real interesting place, you know, Reunion Tower uh, that sticks up in the air right next to it. Uh, uh, you know, I walked into that arena, and the first impression I had of that place was that it reminded me a lot of college arenas. I mean, it, uh, uh, the way it was configured and uh, the way the booths were, we had a wonderful broadcast location in Reunion Arena. It was just low enough. Uh, and uh, just close enough to the ice where you really felt like you were part of the game. Yeah. That's what I liked about that arena. And and I thought the seats, you know, for a modern arena, uh, and again, we've got to tell our listeners who are probably a little younger that don't remember this, uh, there wasn't hockey there in that building until 1993 when the Minnesota North Stars right. moved yep. uh, to Dallas. Uh, and uh, so – you know they've been there. Uh, what we're we're talking thirty years now uh, in Dallas, and uh, and of course a new arena now. But that was a kind of an intimate arena that really uh, got loud. Uh, that's what I always remember. And then another thing I remember was the uh, public address announcer was very unique. Okay. Uh, in in Dallas, I don't know why I think of these funny things. I know it's popcorn <laughs> in Washington we talked about, yeah. and now it's. The PA announcer, uh, uh, who when the when the stars came out uh, for each period, uh, he had this very low voice. Your Dallas Stars, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, it was it was unique. You know, sometimes a public address announcer could really accent uh, and cement an identity for you know the fans uh, that are enjoying the game in the arena. And I, I always was kind of. Uh, partial to that uh, aspect of it, and so uh, it was. Uh, 
it was great to see Mike Padano flying around uh, uh, and and uh, all the uh, Jamie Langenbrunner and uh, of course uh, Eddie the Eagle Belfour and uh, and and for some reason we always had the stars number. Uh, in that arena, the the uh, Hurricanes always played extremely well, and even the Whalers did uh, in the last four years of their existence when uh, uh, Minnesota moved to Dallas. And so, Reunion Arena was a very special place, and it was easy to get to. Our hotel uh, was only like 500 feet away, so we nice. didn't even have to go outside. Uh, we walked through a convention center and into into the arena. And it was very easy to get to from that standpoint for a visiting team. Now, did you get a chance to do any sightseeing? Because there's a lot to, lot to see down in Dallas, you know, with the, with the JFK situation down yeah. there. And, yeah, did you ever get a chance to see any of that stuff? Oh, yeah, because uh, just up the block uh, from Reunion Arena, a couple of blocks north, is Dealey Plaza. Right, And right. that was one of the first places I visited, and, of course, solemnly so, because I was a seventh-grade kid when uh, – Unfortunately, John F. Kennedy was shot, yeah, uh, yeah. and, and uh, uh, I saw the book depository. In fact, the All-Star Game was there in the early 2000s. I took my wife down to Dallas, yeah. and we actually toured the Texas, what at that time was the Texas School Book Depository, and uh, uh, they, it's actually a museum now, uh, and uh, we saw the angle, and uh, the grassy knoll is gone, interestingly yeah. enough, yeah. but... Uh, but Dealey Plaza is there, and of course, uh, it uh, uh, conjures some uh, very uh, bad memories for our country's history. And but that's only, as you say, a few blocks away from Reunion Arena. Now, how quickly do you did you feel that the Texas uh, community caught on to hockey? Because you know it was uh, it was kind of new to the South, right back then. But how quickly did Dallas embrace uh, the Stars? Well, it's interesting because, you know, three, what was it, five short? I mean, they were a competitive team right from the bat. The North Stars weren't a bad team. They just ran into a bad situation with uh, an owner who uh, kind of ran it into the ground, Norm Green, who used to be yeah. a minority owner of the Calgary Flames. And so they uh, uh, – and then he got caught with uh, uh, some off-ice activities that forced him to sell the team and then and, and move it. And, and, but uh, I thought they embraced it very well. And, of course, five short years later, they win the Stanley Cup. Right. Uh, Brett right. Hull and the, and the uh, circular crease notwithstanding, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, they, they beat the Buffalo Sabres that year uh, and, uh, uh, in 99. So uh, it was, uh, you know, it didn't take them very long to, to build a very good competitive team uh, and, and have some very uh, solid players. Uh, uh, and so I think the community did embrace them, and I think that once they moved out of Reunion Arena, John, I think it hurt them a little bit because uh, uh, the new building is about twice the size, you know, at least from a square footage standpoint, than the old Reunion Arena who had some intimacy to it. It's kind of like what happened in Boston, going from the Garden to uh, uh, to the new arena in, in uh, right. Boston TD Garden right. and, uh, to a certain extent. and. And so, you know, those old buildings uh, really had a lot of character. And I, and I guess you could quasi-qualify uh, uh, Reunion Arena as an old building, uh, at least from the standpoint of uh, standards today. Okay, Chuck, uh, we're going to head out to Canada for the next one. We'll go to Western Canada, and we'll talk about the Pacific Coliseum in Vancouver. Uh, I, I had a chance to meet Jim Robson one night. Uh, the, oddly enough, the Canucks were in Los Angeles. I was working in California at the time. Jim uh, was a really nice guy. And uh, I wonder if you'd care to share your observations on the uh, Pacific Coliseum for us. 
Yeah, it was on the east side of town. It was uh, one of those, uh, well, you know, in baseball, how we had those cookie-cutter buildings, uh, baseball stadiums like Cincinnati, yes. Philadelphia, yep. Pittsburgh. Yep. Uh, uh, and so uh, it was kind of in the same realm as Northlands Coliseum in Edmonton. It was a round building. Uh, and uh, it, uh, the thing I remember the most, you speak of Jim Robson, my broadcast location as the visiting announcer was right next to him. But mm-hmm. here was the catch. No elevators and only one way to get there, and it was through the press box. So you went up the stairs, then you had to walk across a catwalk across the ice. Oh, boy. And you had <laughs> rickety, uh, rickety boards. It's almost as if you have, uh, you know, when you have your deck in the backyard that needs repair. Yep. Uh, and, and you got some shaky boards there. Well, I was walking across with my equipment, and, the bo- you know, you, you would be looking down. And if you were acrophobic, uh, you would never even be able to broadcast the game there. Oh, wow. Because you had to walk across the ice over the clock at center ice and and get down and then come down another set of stairs to get to the broadcast location. It was very scary. Wow. Uh, the first time, I, I couldn't believe it because uh, the late Norm Jewison, who was the PR director of the Canucks when I first started, uh, told me, well, he, he, I asked him, I had never been in the building before, obviously, so I, he pointed up on that side where you see the CKNW sign yep. where Jim Robson worked. He says, your booth's right next door. I said, well, how do you get there? He says, well, you have to come through the press box, which is on the opposite side of the broadcast booth, and walk across this wooden catwalk. And I'll tell you what, it was very, <laughs> it was a harrowing experience to say the least. But uh, saw some interesting games there uh, in in the in Whaler history, and I think that uh, Patrick Sundstrom, I think, was the first guy to score an overtime goal, as I recall, against the Whalers. Their, their first overtime loss ever was in Vancouver a kid named Patrick Sundstrom scored the game-winning goal but for, for the most part uh, the, the Whalers had some very good luck in that building yeah absolutely and uh, you know you talk about walking across catwalks I remember having to do that at RPI many years ago and of course to, to get to the uh, broadcast booth at the Excel Center itself there's a there's a catwalk that you have to walk across so sometimes broadcasters have to take their uh, lives in their hands sometimes Chuck just to do their job Oh, yeah. I don't think anybody's going to feel sorry for us because we have so much fun doing what we do. But yeah, uh, yeah. you're right. It's uh, an interesting scenario when you have uh, uh, have to go through and endure some of these uh, uh, tragedies. Or, oh, I won't call it a tragedy, but when you have to endure some of these uh, uh, little uh, uh, incidents where uh, you need – to uh, maybe have some psychiatric help afterwards because <laughs> you're you're traumatized by some of these broadcast locations. But uh, all in all, uh, Vancouver was a wonderful place uh, because it was so diverse with the culture. And uh, uh, let's face it, I love Chinese food, and you get some of the best of it in Vancouver. Wow, okay. Well, I've never been there. I've been to Seattle, but not Vancouver. So I'll, I'll have to put that on the bucket list uh, for sure. Yeah, it's kind of like the popcorn and watch. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. By the way, I had a few people uh, comment on that on the popcorn, uh, you know, discussion we had in Washington. They were they were enthralled by it. So uh, keep keep yeah. keep that stuff up. That's great. We're going to go okay. to an, uh, an original six arena now, Chuck. One we did not touch on last time, and that's Madison Square Garden in New York City, home of the New York Rangers. That building has undergone a lot of renovations uh, over time, but that arena is classic and it has stood the test of time. Yeah, I'm so old, John, that I remember when it was uh, erected. We were there, uh, my my parents and I were there for the World's Fair in 1964, 
and they were starting to build Madison Square Garden that year. Uh, the old garden was up uh, on the Upper West Side, and I actually walked uh, there as a uh, 13-year-old kid. Uh, I don't think 13-year-old kids walk around the streets of New York alone uh, anymore today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, times have changed, but my parents were... Uh, we were at the, in fact, uh, the old Pennsylvania Hotel is where we stayed, and I understand that's uh, uh, being knocked down now. And that was right across the street from Penn Station, yeah. which was next door to the uh, emerging Madison Square Garden. So in right. 19, it took about four years to build it because they didn't move in there until, I think, 1968, something okay, like yeah. that. Yep. Right? And, and so uh, that was the original garden. And like you said, they it underwent a lot of renovations, and boy, did they need them. Because the first time I ever did a game in there uh, was uh, early in the season uh, in October of 79, where I think the Whalers played a 2-2 tie uh, with the Rangers at that time. And I used to drive from Hartford with my engineer right. uh, to the garden. But the broadcast location was not very good. It was way back. If people remember the garden, uh, your seats were way, you know, the angle of the seats was not pitched very well. You were too far away and not high enough. And uh, the problem with the radio booth back then was that you were basically, it was a row uh, at the end of the seating, uh, the lower level seating. And so if people stood up, you couldn't see the ice. You had to stand up to look over their heads wow. to watch what happened. And so if the Rangers were, uh, you know, uh, having a flurry in the zone and uh, were putting the pressure on the other team, People would stand in front of you, and then you'd have the occasional uh, crazy person knowing that you're the visiting radio guy and would start yelling and screaming, and we'd have crowd noise mics. This was before effects mics right. uh, that you received from television trucks. So I had an effects mic out, and when they'd see an open mic, they'd just yell and scream into it, and, right. uh, you know, uh, barbarically. And uh, But then they uh, have changed the rules over the years. Now you're a patron. Just like the Masters, you're not a uh, fan anymore. So any patron who gets out of line now at Madison Square Garden can be reported by another patron and can be thrown out of the building if there's any uh, bad language or any yeah. uh, disturbances. So I'll tell you what, the atmosphere of Madison Square Garden has changed quite a bit uh, from 40 or 45 years ago. But uh, uh, and then, But the improvements that they made in the building now uh, have it such that the broadcast level is up. Uh, uh, they call it the Chase Deck uh, that uh, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase sponsors it now, and uh, they it's uh, it's right above the ice, and it's a wonderful broadcast location for both radio and television. But uh, the garden was wild back in those days, and of course, no more wild than we saw back in just around Christmas time in '79. Remember when the Bruins all jumped the glass? Yeah, led by the late Peter McNabb and Mike Milbury. Yeah. And, and and ended up hitting people with shoes, and a riot developed in a Bruin game one night. Remember that? Yeah, I do. And uh, that's something that uh, you're you're never going to see that again. I mean, that that was <laughs> the, probably the first and last time you're ever going to see that at a professional sporting event. But you make a good point about you know fans seeing a microphone there. I remember doing baseball games up in Quebec City, and uh, I had the crowd mic out the window, and the fans were literally right on top of of the window there. So they uh, they they started shouting obscenities in my microphone in French. So I had to, I, eventually I learned, I, I just pot the field mic down if I see trouble coming. Yeah, that and it, it's it's too bad you had to do that, but that, that's how things have changed in uh, 
the world of broadcasting. And I think we explored this the last time we talked, John. Some of our listeners might remember that we uh, I always talk about broadcast locations in some of these new buildings as uh, being in a Zeppelin because uh, yeah. even though the technology has improved, the broadcast sight lines have not. They've gone backwards, unfortunately, uh, for radio and TV people. Uh, so much so that I notice now, and I, I'm sure you do as well, John, when you watch a broadcast, uh, you're, you're looking at broadcasters who say, I think it was tipped in. Uh, let's see this again. I mean, they're not really definitive on how a goal is scored because they're so far up that they can't tell. Right. And that, that's, that, that's uh, somewhat of a dismaying uh, thing to me as, as a broadcast professional or in my case, maybe an alleged professional, uh, that to hear that because uh, you should have a better vantage point so you can bring the listener or viewer uh, more accurate uh, rather than guessing what happened and having to rely on replays all the time. Very true, Chuck. Well, uh, we, we have to go to another original Six City, one that we did not touch on last time, and one I'm sure you're going to have a lot of uh, opinions on because you're from Michigan. we got to talk about Detroit, right? Because uh, you started uh, right after uh, the Olympia uh, went by the wayside, and you did a lot of games at Joe Louis Arena over the years, so Detroit's a great hockey town, and I'd love, uh, I'd love to get some perspective on uh, Detroit from you. Yeah, well, first of all, if if you want to touch on Olympia a little bit, because that's where I cut my teeth as a sure. uh, as a uh, fan. Uh, when my dad took me, my first game was when Gordy Howe tied Rocket Richard with his 544th goal for most goals in the NHL. Uh, so that and I had standing room for a buck and a half. We couldn't even get a ticket uh, at the last minute. My dad took me to the game, and that was my first live game uh, back in 1963. Uh, so uh, I had watched games on television before. And uh, but Olympia was a very special place. Uh, it was like home. If you if you talk to the uh, uh, Marty and Mark Howe, who uh, watched their dad play there for so many times, we we really can relate. That's why we're so good friends now. Uh, talking about those old days of being at the games, so we were probably at a lot of the same games uh, back in those days. And and Olympia was pitched to the balcony which was the best seat in the house to me, center ice in the balcony, much like it is in Boston Garden. Right. Uh, it, was, it was pitched so well that you were right over the ice. But now Joe Louis Arena was just the opposite because it was a very Spartan, uh, Spartanly built building that was one level. I mean, you never, uh, you know, they didn't have an upper deck, so to speak, or right. a balcony to, to lean over the ice because uh, I guess construction constraints changed things over the years and you uh, were not able to do the things uh, from a uh, safety standpoint I guess uh, that you could b back when Olympia was built in the 20s so uh, I think that uh, Joe Lewis was uh, a decent arena to watch a game in it was a horrible place to broadcast a game in because again you had that same problem of a very cramped press box mm. where you couldn't even walk to abreast behind the booths and the booths were right in with the writers and you had to stick a crowd noise mic out and you had some bellowing fan right below you once again that would, uh, you know, in the days again before uh, effects mics, uh, the crowd noise mic would pick up individuals once again who might have had a little bit too much uh, imbibing going on and uh, they, they knew where the visiting radio booth was once again. But, you know, Joe Louis Arena, for me, 
bittersweet memories. I mean, Scotty Bowman is a very good friend of mine, so I was happy to see him win his ninth Stanley Cup back in 2002. But it's bitter because it came at the expense of the Carolina Hurricanes, as you'll recall, right? Uh, in a five-game series. So we were there, Joe Lewis, when uh, Scotty won his last Cup. It's a memory I'll never forget. He put his skates on, skated around the ice, and, of course, announced after the game that uh, uh, he uh, was retiring from coaching. So I guess it was nice to to be in the same building, but uh, not a great memory, but uh, uh, one that, uh, uh, again, is indelible in my mind. Uh, But uh, uh, it was also the home of the Detroit play, what I used to call the Detroit play, the – Ronnie Francis would win a face-off forward and throw a pass across the slot to Blaine Stoughton, and he scored a goal to tie a game in Detroit one night. And it was a novel play because the centerman never threw the puck behind his counterpart and then reached around him to make the pass. Right. And that was the first time. I don't know if players even try that today, but Ronnie was such a cerebral player. And that happened in Detroit back uh, in the mid-'80s. So uh, that's another memory out of Joe Louis Arena. Not one of my favorite places to broadcast a game, but uh, it still held a lot of uh, warmth for me because, as you said, it's my hometown. Great stuff. We're talking with Chuck Caton, longtime uh, radio voice of the Hartford Whalers and Carolina Hurricanes. You're listening to Airing It Out, files from Leahy's broadcast booth. Uh, we're discussing classic NHL arenas with Chuck, and uh, he has seen them all over the years, and it's a great joy to have this opportunity to chat with Chuck about this. Uh, Chuck, we're going to go back to Canada for the next one, and this is an arena that uh, you spent a lot of time in, going back to the Adams Division days. Of course, the Quebec Nordiques moved out of Quebec City, moved out to Denver, but uh, the uh, Colisée de Quebec, uh, a lot of great memories there, I'm sure, and that's a city that I know well. I did a lot of baseball up there, but uh, I'd love to hear some uh, stories about Quebec City and uh, the broadcast booth there. Well, the broadcast booth was great. Uh, You were right over the ice. We were right next to our French compatriots. Uh, Alain Crete was the uh, play-by-play guy back in those days, and uh, uh, Andre Cote was... uh, uh, a guy who worked with him. I remember those two guys. I wonder where they are now. I know Ele uh, ended up going to work at RDS in Montreal for years, but I, again, having been out of the game for five years now, I, I don't know where my uh, friends, my French friends are now. Danny Dubé, and uh, of course, they followed in the footsteps of the great uh, Rene Le Cavalier, who worked concurrently with Danny Gallivan uh, back then, and Rene would do some games. Uh, in Quebec City as well as Canadians games. But uh, the Colisée was a, a, a wonderful old arena. And, and the big memory for me, we, we're going to go back to food once again. All right. You walked into that arena, you smelled the wonderful hot dogs. All right. Uh, the uh, wonderful, wonderful hot dogs and the buns uh, that they had were just very unique. Uh, in fact, Montreal and Quebec had that in common where you had uh, great hot dogs uh, uh, and uh, you you smelled it all around the building. It was almost like uh, uh, you knew you were in La Colisée were there. And another thing you knew about La Colisée was that you were going to always have a spirited game. And I don't think we ever had one game in those Adams Division wars that you talked about that had any fewer than 10 or 12 penalties. Oh, yeah. Now, oh, if yeah. you get 10 penalties today, everybody thinks it's a wild game. <laughs> well, when the Whalers and the Nordiques, two teams that knew each other from the World Hockey Association, got together, 
there were no fewer than 10 to 12. I mean, if you had 10 penalties in a night, that was a that was a very docile evening. Right. right. One night we had uh, Kerry Fraser was uh, refereeing a game one night, and the Whalers ended up, you know, routing. They, they were up. This was back in the late 80s now where the Nordiques fell on hard times. They were missing the playoffs and getting uh, uh, first-round picks. You know, people like Matt Sundin and Joe Sackick and Curtis Lecician, they went three or four years where they finished last in the Adams division, and uh, you, you didn't have the draft lottery back then. So when they had the worst record in hockey, they got some of the best players in the draft right. and ended up building a Stanley Cup champion that ended up moving to Colorado, as you all right. know. Right. So, uh, but, but, so in those days, they were hapless, and whenever we played there, we had a lot of confidence and one night, it was like 7-1 to one going into the third period, and Kerry Fraser was not one of the uh, Nordique fans' uh, favorite officials. And I never saw this again, and I never uh, thought I'd ever see it, but when he made penalty calls, he made, I think, something like five straight penalty calls against the Nordiques because you had people like uh, Paul Gillis running around uh, like a chicken with his head cut off, uh, you know, a very physical and sometimes dirty player, and, and they were starting to, you know, uh, hammer away at the Whalers because of the disparity of the score, and people went to the restrooms, pulled out toilet paper rolls, oh, and boy. threw toilet paper rolls from every bathroom in La Colise <laughs> onto the ice. <laughs> and uh, I wonder if it's on YouTube somewhere. It's got to be somewhere where people can verify this story. By seeing it, uh, I, in fact, I'll even after this uh, podcast, I'm going to go on YouTube and see. I'll, I'll put toilet paper game La Colise and see if we come up with something. But toilet paper uh, and rolls were raining from the balconies, from the, the uh, lower level. There must have been 20 to 25 rolls of toilet paper thrown onto the ice oh, uh, because people were <laughs> protesting the officiating slants of Kerry Fraser, who had and still did and still probably does have the, uh, the most perfect hair, as Warren Zevon would say, in <laughs> hockey. You know, his hair was perfect, <laughs> just like the werewolf of London. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have, some, I have some broadcasting friends up there. I'm going to reach out to them and see if they yeah. remember that as well. Uh, I but, wish I could recall the date, John, but I, but I know it was in the late – it was when Nordiques were not a very good hockey team uh, – uh, but uh, and it was after the Stashnies were gone uh, for a little bit. But that toilet paper game, so, yeah, reach out to somebody. I'm sure somebody's going to remember it. All right, I'll forward it to you if I get any response from that. Uh, <laughs> okay. That'll be cool. But you know, the other thing they have up there, you talk about food. They have poutine, right? Which is the oh. which is an incredible uh, Canadian, the French. Uh, uh, creation and uh, I had a little bit of it when I did uh, the baseball games up there and uh, boy that, that's a fun place to visit. Yeah, cheese curds with gravy on French fries. How can you hate it? <laughs> now yeah. the trouble is I weigh about two thirty something right now, but when I was in Quebec, uh, I weighed like one ninety 
And all those visits to Quebec is the reason I can say I gained 30 or 40 pounds. <laughs> so at least that's the excuse I'm going to use. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Got to be careful yeah. with that stuff. Let's use it sparingly. Um, yes. I'd like to stay in, in Canada for the next couple, Chuck. Uh, we're going to go out to Alberta now. Let's start with the Edmonton uh, Northlands Coliseum. Uh, what a great history the Oilers had. Uh, you know, a great dynasty out there, the Gretzky years and all. But when I watched games on TV from Edmonton, the Northlands Coliseum looked like a very clean arena. I wonder if you could uh, just give us your thoughts on uh, that building. Yeah, lots of uh, great memories there. And with my wife being Ukrainian and Polish, uh, as well as a little Irish and Scotch in there as well, she makes the best pierogies uh, in the world. All right. And, there you go. Uh, and the one thing I was uh, – and again, I don't know why this gravitates to food when we talk about this. The first <laughs> thing I think of with some of these buildings. But uh, they, I had never thought I would ever see a hockey rink that sold at their concession stands pierogies. Wow. You know, six, for, six for $3 or whatever it was. And I tried them, and they were made by little old Polish grandmothers. Oh, that's awesome. Grandmothers, and they were fresh. They were surprisingly very good. But <laughs> as far as the hockey's concerned, obviously the, uh, the uh, playoffs of 06 is where I remember uh, the Northlands Coliseum the most. I mean, you know, the Gretzky era notwithstanding, because we didn't have a lot of success in that building as the Whalers, but as the Hurricanes – uh, obviously, they won a seven-game series to win the Stanley Cup against the Edmonton Oilers, who, uh, you know, really had a Cinderella season, uh, proving once again that anybody who makes the playoffs can go to the Stanley Cup final because Edmonton was the eighth-place team. Uh, they just squeaked in and made the playoffs in the Western Conference. And, uh, of course, the Hurricanes had a terrific 52-win season, so it was kind of, you would think on paper, David against Goliath, but it wasn't that way. It was a very, very close and competitive series. And, uh, of course, the uh, Hurricanes won it in seven. But uh, the, the worst thing about going to Edmonton in that building was that um, uh, from a television perspective, the press box was on the same. And it, this might be the only arena that this ever held true. The press box, the television uh, perspective was on the same side as the benches and of course they now legislate against that you have to be able to see the benches on television oh yeah right right yeah. well the northlands coliseum was the opposite the television was behind the benches and they shot to the penalty box side was on the far side so that was unique about it but uh, again northlands coliseum was uh, another one of those, like the cookie-cutter buildings we spoke of earlier, that round building like Pacific Coliseum Vancouver, uh, where uh, it was completely round. Uh, it had two tiers of seats, and but it's still a very good uh, building to watch a game in, but very quiet building. I, I mean, it was a lot like uh, the old Maple Leaf Gardens and Air Canada centers, probably a little more boisterous now just because of the uh, culture and the, the, the people that go in there now as opposed to years ago. But it was a very quiet building. They were very clinical. And when they watched the game, they were so spoiled to watch uh, those great Oiler teams of the 80s that they, it was almost like, oh, hum, you know, we win another hockey game. Yeah, right. Uh, and, and, they, and they didn't really show a lot of emotion. So for a, for a building, they were politely clapping. And, uh, but it was not a boisterous building. I never felt it was an intimidating building for a visiting team. But, of course, that all changed in 06 when uh, the uh, the Oilers really put a scare into the Hurricanes. Uh, they were up three games to one, the Hurricanes were, and the Oilers won the next two games, one in Raleigh, and then, of course, game six with a shutout in Edmonton. 
And uh, the uh, the thing I'll remember about Game Six is, uh, you know, it was played on June 17th, and you know, with uh, the summer solstice around the corner, how light it would be uh, at that uh, latitude. Uh, in uh, and, and the sun was basically setting at like 9:30 or 10 o'clock at night uh, when the game. So we were at dusk, going back to the hotel, licking our wounds after losing Game Six. And you hear people uh, honking horns, uh, thinking they've won the Stanley Cup or they're going to win Game Seven in Raleigh because they've come back from three games to one, and uh, that it was an unsettling time. It was bad enough that it was still light when you wanted to go to bed at eleven o'clock. Right. But to hear the but to hear the horns blaring through Jasper Avenue and One Hundred First Street in downtown Edmonton near your hotel was something else. And then we had to get up the next morning to fly back to Raleigh. Uh, in preparation for Game 7 on June 19th that year. Wow, uh, that, that's great yeah. stuff. Uh, we'll stay in Alberta, uh, Chuck. We'll talk about the Calgary Flames next. Uh, of course, they were in the uh, Saddle Dome uh, back uh, in the days. And, uh, of course, it's still known as the Saddle Dome today, the Scotiabank Saddle Dome. But uh, another unique arena, right? Yeah, and even before that, you've got to remember, John, that in, when I started in 79, the year after that, when the Atlanta Flames moved to Calgary, they played at the old Calgary Corral ah. at the Stampede Grounds before okay. uh, that building was open. And that was a uh, unique experience because the boards were actually six or eight inches higher than the normal height of the boards in an arena. Wow. So guys had trouble chopping over the boards and getting on the ice. You'd see a lot of guys, when they'd come off the bench trying to make a player change, uh, falling down on their first stride to get over the bench to get into the play. Wow. And a lot of guys just gave up the ghost and came through the regular door, so it made blind changes very difficult. But fortunately uh, for me, it was only, I think, two years of going to that arena before they built that beautiful building, uh, the inverted paraboloid roof wow. that we uh. all remember of the Saddle Dome, similar to uh, the Capitol Center in Washington. Right. Uh, right. Which was like that, right? I mean, that was another architectural gem. And uh, that building was also very quiet. And uh, at least you could take an elevator to the press box. But the thing I remember about the Saddle Dome's press box and radio level was once they turned on and i don't know why they did this because every time we were in calgary it was like 10 below zero outside <laughs> so all they had to do was open the doors if they wanted cold air to be in the building they would still run the blowers and the blowers would vibrate the uh, the partitions between booths and the partitions were made basically of uh uh, uh, of cloth or of the uh, a tarp material, you know, kind of like a plasticky material. So it'd be like flipping and flopping like a flag uh, in your booth, and and you'd feel that cold air on you. And there were many a night where I would actually wear my coat while I was broadcasting the game. It was so cold in that arena. Well, similar uh, similar and, to the similar to the Capitol Center, right, with the cold air blowing on you. Exactly. Same thing. I don't know what, maybe it was the same architectural firm that <laughs> designed that arena that it, that it designed the Capitol Center, you know, decades earlier. But, yeah, I don't know why they felt compelled to run the blower. Now, I, I will admit that Calgary had some of the best, like Edmonton, it had the best ice in the league uh, because of it. Uh, but I think a lot of that was due to the uh, environment uh, outside on most of the nights. And it was always, 
the, the thing that always rankled me too is we'd always play in Calgary and Edmonton in December and January. Oh yeah, for some reason yeah. we couldn't we couldn't catch a break and get a nice October day or something maybe the early part of November where it didn't get really frigid yet, or even sometime in March or early April. You would never have a Western trip then, so it was always uh, cold uh, when you went to Calgary. But the building was uh, uh, interesting. It was a nice place to do a game because it was on a, that was on a catwalk as well, and you were right over the ice, uh, and it was, a, it was a great broadcast location. The game always seemed a lot faster uh, when you were on top of the play like that, uh, when you did games in Calgary. Awesome. Well, we got a couple more quick ones here, Chuck, before we let you go. Right. We're going to go from one of the coldest uh, cities to one of the hottest cities down in Miami, Florida, where the uh, Florida Panthers uh, originally started play at the old Miami Arena. And I remember hearing some stories about that place, that uh, that arena wasn't in a particularly good neighborhood. No, and I found that out the hard way. But I didn't get in any trouble. I mean, nobody mugged me or anything. But I was told uh, when I the first game I ever did there, when they were in the league in uh, uh, the 93-94 season, they came in, um, and uh, along with the Anaheim Ducks, as people recall. So I'm walking from the hotel. We were at a Marriott, uh, and it was about a five-block walk. But nobody told me that it was a bad area. So for the morning skating, well, at least it was light. And I'm walking, and then I'm walking through an area. But you got to remember, I'm from Detroit, and I hate to make a denigrating comment about uh, my city. But if if people are listening to this and lived in Detroit in the '60s, late '60s, you know what I'm talking about. Because Detroit's a wonderful city now; it's undergone a lot of positive changes in the downtown area. But Detroit in the '60s, so I wasn't intimidated driving, uh, walking to Miami Arena. It was just right. like walking almost through my neighborhood growing up. But right. uh, uh, yeah, so but the Miami Arena itself, though, was a, a very intimidating place for visiting teams. I mean, they were an expansion team, and they were a team that had to be reckoned with because they had some character players. Uh, I mean, you know, you look at uh, guys like the goaltending of John Van Beesbrook, you had Brian Scrudlin, you had Bill Lindsay, you had hardworking guys, you had some finesse guys. and But the biggest thing was the building itself was conducive to making a lot of noise. People were really rambunctious. They may have had some trepidation getting into that neighborhood to go to games, but once they were in that building, you knew you were in a hockey building. It was just like the Boston Garden. You know, they were right on top of you. They were boisterous fans, and they kind of lost a little bit of that when they moved out uh, uh, to Sunrise, Florida, when they went into the new building. And uh, the funniest story about the new building was Bob Miller, the L.A. Kings announcer, uh, was at the hotel and wanted to take a cab to a game one night to the new building, and it was called the National Car Rental Center, Yep, as you yep. might recall. That yep. was one of the many names that it's had over the years. Um, so when he told the cab driver, take me to the National Car Rental Center, the guy took him to Fort Lauderdale Airport, oh boy. the National Car Rental. And Bob's <laughs> looking at the cab driver and said, wait a minute. I said, let's go to the, don't you know the name of the hockey rink is National Car Rental Center? Oh, sir, I'm sorry. I thought I wanted to, you wanted to go to National Car Rental. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully the car ride back wasn't too long to the arena. I know. And, but, you know, Fort Lauderdale Airport is kind of on the way from the beach in yeah. Fort Lauderdale to Sunrise, Florida. So I'm sure Bob didn't miss a minute of the game, but that was one of the more humorous stories I ever heard about it. And that building had a great press box. It was nice. Uh, uh, you had to take a freight elevator, though. You had to wait for uh, a ton of time, just like Tampa. 
I don't know why these buildings that were built didn't put press elevators in, but uh, uh, you had to wait for a freight elevator, and of course you get there two and a half hours before the game, and everybody who's working is taking their concessions up, and so you're going to be waiting for uh, an eternity to take it up to the seventh or eighth floor where you needed to go because it would stop at every floor. Of course, Boston was the same way, the new building, TD Garden. But uh, once you got upstairs, uh, you saw the friendly face of Denny Potvin, who used to be the color man for the Panthers, and the rest. And then Bobby Orr would come to games uh, and, and visit with you before. And so, yeah, I always loved my trips to Florida, especially in the new building. Yeah, it had to be strange. You know, you're doing a, a game in, a, in the arena. You walk out, it's, what, 80, 90 degrees at, oh, uh, all the time, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Even at night, it would be muggy after a game. And uh, um, here's a little trivial fact, too, as I, as I think about it, John. The last NHL tie was played in that building. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh-huh. Right. Before the lockout. Uh, because, remember, we had the shootout mm-hmm. the, uh, that started in 05-06. So, in the 03-04 uh, season, because we didn't have an 04-05 with the lockout, the Carolina Hurricanes played the Florida Panthers uh, in the final game of that season to a 6-6 draw. Wow. Good stuff. Good stuff. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, we're and, all uh, Yeah. Yeah, we're that, all that we're all Yep. We're all about storytelling here, Chuck. So that's that's stuff that our audience is going to love. Yeah, Absolutely. It's funny the things you remember, you know, about the, when you when you bring up uh, all of these buildings Something always pops up that uh, happens, and uh, it's incredible. Uh, and I remember Eddie Belfour was the goaltender for the Panthers that night, and he was livid. He came out in that 80-degree, you know, 75-degree muggy night to go to his Lamborghini or whatever he's driving <laughs> right by our bus when we're ready to leave, and he was, like, hurling expletives at somebody. I don't know if it was the referee. He always thought that Eric Cole was a diver. Okay. Uh, and and so I think that Eric uh, drew a couple of penalties, let's put it that way, that night. And uh, Eddie Belfour gave the diving motion like he g- gyrated his body. And I don't think the officials liked it. They gave him a uh, uh, a penalty for, uh, you know, abusive officials or something like that. Or, a, you know, one of those uh, uh, penalties that uh, yeah. was uh, not a good one to take. and. Uh, I remember that was in that same 6-6 tie because he probably felt they should have won the game 6-3, but not for like three or four power play goals scored by the Hurricanes that night. Yeah, and today they'd call that unsportsmanlike conduct, right? That, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly. exactly what I was trying to think of. I was having a mental black uh, blank there. It's tough to be 71 and try to recall all this stuff. You know? <laughs> well, you're doing a great job, Chuck. And I have one more for you before we let you go. Uh, we sure. we got to talk about Ottawa because uh, the Senators came in and they played in a very tiny rink, right? The, the, it only held like 10,000 fans initially before they uh, built uh, the current rink. Ottawa had some bad teams when they first uh, got started, uh, at least you know the second uh, indoctrination uh, in Ottawa because they had a team way back when. But uh, I, I imagine you have some interesting thoughts on Ottawa. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that old Ottawa Civic Center was uh, incredible, uh, how small it was and how uh, our press, uh, our actual radio booth was in a closet. I mean, he had, uh, uh, it, it was no wider than about six feet, maybe at most, try to get an engineer and two broadcasters in there. And uh, yeah, it, uh, uh, and, and part of it had an angled roof 
because it was kind of attached to the football stadium. Right. So right. the angle of the roof uh, was like the stands on one side of the football field. So it, it had an odd shape to it. And you're right. Those teams were terrible. But again, I'm going to relate to a public address announcer, like I mentioned with Dallas earlier in this podcast. Yeah, yep. uh, There was a gentleman named Richard Proulx, and of course you had to be bilingual, uh, in order, like in Montreal, to make the announcements. So Richard Proulx was the PA announcer in that old Civic Center. In fact, uh, he was there even for the first year or two of the new building. Um, but here was his claim to fame. Now, this was his own player, and it was a former Whaler, Terry Ake. Okay. And uh, so he took a penalty one night against us, and he went to the box, and uh, Richard Poole promptly announces Ottawa penalty number 25, Terry Yaki. <laughs> Did you get hungry? <laughs> That's right. We were always talking about food. Yeah. Right? So, uh, I, believe, I fell off my chair. I, I started laughing so hard that I uh, and 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 then that was the same night. It was the first game that we played in there. Okay, in '92. Mm-hmm. He's teriyaki, but before the game in our little broadcast booth. That was the organ loft, apparently, and no, and whenever they and so, and it also doubled as boxes when they would have concerts in there. Okay, you know, so it was mm. a radio booth slash organ booth slash uh, <laughs> uh, 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 skybox, if you want to call it that. Yeah, um, and it was a good location. But one night I walked in there, and the organ was in my broadcast location. Oh, wow. So Brian Burke was our general manager at the time. So this was the 93-94 or 92-93 season. Yeah, it was that first year. So he's helping me uh, roll out this organ out of my booth so I can sit down and prepare for the game. (laughs) And we leave it in the hallway behind us. It just fit through the door. (laughs) And the the ladies who were – uh, uh, putting out all the concessions and all the food for the Skybox people, which was on the same level, mm-hmm. are looking at us like, what the heck are you guys doing putting an <laughs> organ in the, in, in the hallway? Because it was blocking. Nobody took it out of our booth from whatever event was there the day before. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or, or, <laughs> I mean, you can't, you can't write this stuff. I mean, it's incredible. But uh, uh, when they moved to the new building, uh, the only detriment there, it was a good place uh, to watch a game. It still is. But it was so far out. It would take you 45 minutes from downtown with the traffic to get there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, But, uh, you know, uh, they, they're talking about building a new building downtown. But uh, who knows if that's going to happen, just like in the Calgary situation. They're, they're pleading for a new building there. And, Really, nothing's happened yet. And, of course, they've got to settle the ownership situation in Ottawa first. Yeah. So you made a, a point about the public address announcers being bilingual. In Quebec, the announcements were in French only. How difficult was that uh, for you? Well, that's right. You're exactly right about that. It wasn't because I actually uh, learned quite a bit of French from the uh, – uh, experiences being in Quebec City. I mean, I could order, once again, food. I could order. I could talk to people. And uh, the guys were very, uh, when I say the, the people, the PR people with the Nordiques were very, very patient with those of us who tried to speak French to them. Right. Because if we tried uh, and we earnestly tried to do it, they had a lot of respect for you. And I, right. I respected that. And I tried to speak French as much as I could. Mm-hmm. 
to them. So, but I understood all of the uh, all the terminology, like punition. Uh, uh, I, I, know, I yeah. know all the penalties. Yeah. Uh, you oh, know, okay. uh, obstruction, coup uh, 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 coup. You know what's that? Elbowing. Okay. Oh wow. Okay. I mean, there's there's all, all right. kinds of accroche, uh, 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 is tripping. Uh, so I mean, there's I can recall some of this stuff now. But the, I tried to make it a point to learn. Uh, the French translation of penalties and, yeah, and yeah. Uh, other terminology like that. Yeah, that's it. You know, if, if they see that you're making the effort, they're more likely to be uh, very reciprocal with you. And uh, yeah. that was the same in, in Quebec when I had to learn balls and strikes. And uh, I, I think uh, a ball is called a prise in, in French. Prise, yeah. You know? right. yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it's it's all about making the effort. Well, Chuck, we're, yeah. hot, we're out of time. I, we could go on and on with, with uh, this particular type of topic. Uh, I, I do want to have you on again because I'd like to finish up the list where there were some, uh, some arenas we didn't get to. But uh, again, Chuck, uh, thanks so much for being here. And, and, and I, I'm enjoying it as much as you are, I'm sure. I appreciate that, John. And I'll just leave you with my standard call when I'm in Quebec City. All right. Il Oh, I love it. <laughs> Fantastic stuff, Chuck. Uh, well, we look forward to the next time. And uh, again, it, it was great fun. Uh, next week, uh, I'm going to have uh, my St. Patrick's Day episode. No guests next week. I'm going to have an hour's worth of homemade Irish music that we're going to have on the podcast. So we're going to take a little a fun break that way. But, All right. Well, uh, bring out that homemade Irish whiskey while you're at it, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll be great stuff. Chuck, thanks again. We'll talk to you uh, when we uh, when we finish this up. Thank you, John. All right. He's Chuck Caton, longtime voice of the Hartford Waiters and Carolina Hurricanes. Join us next week, special St. Patrick's Day episode on the podcast. You've been listening to Airing It Out, files from Leahy's broadcast booth. Hello, hockey fans. I'm Dan Rusinowski. Mitochondrial disease is a rare multi-symptom disease characterized by breakdowns in the mitochondria, which are specialized compartments that are present in every cell of the body except red blood cells and are responsible for creating more than 90% of the energy needed by the body to sustain life and support growth. A disease most commonly associated with children, currently there is no cure, just management of symptoms. Hugs for Mito Incorporated is mitochondrial disease, rare disease advocacy, awareness, fundraising for research trials, and hopefully a cure. To learn more, please visit hugsformito.org. 